0: Welcome to the State Change Podcast, where we discuss the issues and subjects that surround the construction of the new Internet. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. While today decentralization seems like a revelation, one thinker more than any other stands out as its chief proponent. In 1945, Frederick Hayek bucked the post war fashion of command control thinking and announced the futility of central economic or societal planning. His essay, the use of knowledge and society is a concise and accurate argument for the organizing principles of the internet, horizontal organizations, and blockchain networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Let's go around uh, our little circle here and, uh, and have everyone introduce themselves. So
1: starting with yourself, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker, Foundation for Economic Education. I used to do digital here, now I do content. Uh, Kurt Demeron. Hi, I, uh, Kirk
2: Dameron here. I have a background, uh, undergrad in engineering and work designing chips and then management and project management 25 plus year in, uh, in technology, technology product development, turning that crank. Uh, Jeffrey, you'd be interested to know that I turned on to economics in my late uh, 40s, uh, became fascinated by the whole thing and uh, decided to quit the, all my high-tech work and go to grad school and study economics. Oh. Uh, I got a graduate degree at uh, a school in Colorado simply because my son was in high school. And during that time, since you said fee, um, I got myself an invitation to Foundation for Economic Fair Education Austrian seminar in the summer of two thousand six.
1: Oh, so I thought that's... I
2: should tell you that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that then was I went with Kersner and uh, yeah,
2: Kersner, Pete Becky, you know, etc. Yeah. Amazing. At any rate, I uh, I did that that summer, finished my graduate degree and then spent a year at George Mason, where I see you spent a little time, too. So after I yeah. got the graduate degree, I went out to George Mason because I really wanted to get a better idea of spontaneous order and emergent order, which was not
0: strong at the state school I studied at. So
2: Sharon. that's my
0: intro. And uh, and and Stephen.
3: Yes, my name's Steven, and I run the Blockchain Association of New Zealand and the Bitcoin Store and a digital asset exchange called DAX. And it's funny you say that because I also attended an advanced Austrian school seminar, I believe, in 2010 uh, in, uh, in Irvington, New York, and I'm an alumni board member of FEE as well.
0: So the subject of uh, today's discussion is Frederick Hayek's uh, essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society. And I was wondering if, uh, if, Jeffrey, if you would lend your dulcet tones to an explanation of, of Hayek's thought in, uh, as represented in this case.
1: Yeah, that's an easy task, you know. Let me just, uh, let me just quickly explain Hayek's use of knowledge and society. I mean, you know, this is, a book, uh, this is an essay written. I, am I right? It was, it was, was it 1944 or 1945? Um, 45. What? 45, yes. 45. <laughs> 45. So it's a very interesting year because that was the year before Fee was founded. Uh, uh, Hayek was entering, you know, this article enters into a world where the dominant assumption was that through science expertise and the marshaling of resources, we could plan better societies than freedom could otherwise ever give us. And that's, that's what the war taught us. I mean, every, every country was engaged in some kind of wartime central planning, you know, over people, resources, prices, everything. And Hayek shows up with this article and says, not only is this not working, It cannot ever work for the fundamental reason that the planners and and intellectuals, for that matter, cannot access the relevant information that they need in order to make the right decisions. It's not possible. Society doesn't work that way. The knowledge that's necessary to make the social order coherent, orderly, and productive is radically dispersed throughout the whole population and lives only in human minds, in individual lives, and those individual lives are defined by, at least in their decision-making capacity, by the time and space in which they exist. And that's just knowledge that we might be able to get at only by accessing those individual minds, which we can't do. But there's another realm of it. Even those individuals themselves in their, pl- as in their lives as planners are carrying around inchoate information, habits, traditions, uh, folkways uh, that themselves are adaptive to the circumstances of time and place, making the world immensely, explosively complex and inaccessible in its, in its, in, 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 in its operational knowledge to any kind of expertise. Uh, So it's not just that central planning can't work. It's that intellectuals themselves need to adopt an attitude of humility and deference to the evolved structure of the social order. Because, speaking scientifically, there's simply no other way to do it. Now, this this claim uh, actually cut across the grain of every professional assumption in something like twelve different disciplines, you know, I mean, yeah. it was it was outrageous and shocking to to simply say to intellectuals, "There's a ton of shit, and it's all the stuff you have to know that you cannot know," um, and <laughs> you know, and, and 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 if you look at the way social order works, it's through this this extended order where we where we gradually evolve our way towards uh, uh finding building institutions that that give us signaling mechanisms for for what other people want and those those signaling mechanisms have to be adaptive, always grinding and changing and evolving according to changing tastes resource availability and so on so on so this is a massive attack on the way, economic science had developed over the course of something like, uh, you know, uh, you know, fifty years. Certainly, maybe as much as a century. Uh, and and it's a fascinating thing. Uh, and I reread this article um, all the time. I don't know how he ended up with the courage and creativity to write this piece at the time he wrote it. Um, right, and it's just weird uh, that that he would have been able to muster that and and to just put it out there. And the fact that it was published at all is amazing. I I had read it probably a dozen times before I really understood it. And for me personally, I'm a little bit of a tactile person. I had to have a real transformative experience in my own life before I could fully grok what it was that Hayek was talking about. And that experience for me happened in Brazil, uh, just looking out over the vast space and realizing, oh my God, there, there's no planning. There, there is no possible no one will ever finally rule this world it's just not possible that's my summary of hike
0: <laughs> well put so you mentioned uh you mentioned emergent order before kirk and I, I figure that uh this segues brilliantly into the way that order emerges in the world if we can't plan it uh wh- what's what's going on here where does it come from
2: well, well, the order that emerges um, perhaps is well understood as a part of Hayek's bigger project, kind of his lifelong project. and 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 Jeffrey, to your point, I think I can actually add just a little bit to where Hayek came on to this. Uh, in his later writings, he was pretty big on uh, his earlier essay that he wrote, I believe in nineteen thirty one or three. Um, called, I think it was Economics and Knowledge. And he had tried to work on this idea and you can think of him as anybody would as a social theorist to be grokking, uh, groping in the dark a little bit. And he was struggling with that, I think from the 30s on. So for you could say that in a sense, the use of knowledge in society, which is indeed a seminal seminal piece, I, it struck me. I was just awestruck when I read it in grad school. And uh, you did a much better job, Jeffrey, explaining it than I could have possibly done. But I do think that it was somewhat of the culmination of his, of his uh, work and thinking for maybe a dozen years at that time. But if you look at his broader project, um, I, I think that Hayek really is is talking about emergent order or complex phenomena, you know, in a way that he came to several uh, large conclusions that this whole idea of what he called positivist or scientific. Um, science trying to reduce everything to equations, even in the social sciences, but also true in the biological sciences, um, neurology, and so on. Um, you really simply cannot make precise predictions about um, complex phenomena, and, yeah. uh, and uh, that has a corollary that's kind of important. And I'll just say that I mean there were, you know, there were five or six major conclusions of his work, but the corollary about complex phenomena uh, not lending themselves to uh, precise predictions is also uh, shown in the fact that when you have theories about complex phenomena, they are not easily falsifiable. And so a lot of bogus theories can be made for a long time and i'll just use one example every week or every three days we read in the journalists another science study that's been published that says coffee's good for you no coffee's bad for you one glass of red wine's good for you it's a complex phenomena folks you're not really going to get a single answer that some other study could say you're wrong or you're right and that's true in, in in all complex phenomena where order emerges from from multiple agents working
1: and and Hayek just got that you know, you know Kirk it's the last several days i've spent a lot of time actually several months reading in and around the the literature that Hayek was opposing and and it, the the contrast between what Hayek was doing and what and what he was attacking is is extreme you know you look at something like even the, in the late 19th century you started seeing this tendency in the social sciences to treat uh, human society as a as a biological or zoological problem, you know as if as if we're dealing with something like um, at, you know animals or in a, or inanimate objects or, or or animals that are not choosing and thinking rational coordinating beings you know I think it's, that's like,
2: the worst part was the the more quantifiable, the, the, the hard sciences, the success that the scientists had made in the hard scientists, hard yeah. sciences like electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, bridge building, et cetera, civil engineering, and then trying to bring those into the social sciences as if humans and complex phenomena could there be was, it was
1: that And there was also the, the advances made in, in uh, how do you say, animal husbandry and, and, and bio, biological, uh, controlling the process of biological evolution, uh, you know, uh, that was also imported. Uh, in a very big way, uh, to management of societies through eugenics programs and uh, de- demographic management and all these kinds of things. So you had, yeah, you had that attack. Too. There's a third. There's a third thing operating here too, and it was the world that Hayek inhabited on the continent in Germany. Yes, you, you know, you had this Hegelian school that had begun in about you know the the 18 teens, and it just grew and it grew. Uh, and culminating in, and somebody like uh, Joseph Spangler's, you know, 19, uh, tedious 1919 treatise, you know, the, uh, the decline of, of the West, and, and culminating in many, in many ways, in Karl Schmitt's, uh, the uh, uh, nature of the political, where history was not even seen as a human subject at all. Uh, there was, it was widely seen that there was like this meta narrative, you know, that floats above human decision making. Uh, large scale forces, as if history had its own personality you know in the in the in this German literature the, and and the, as you can might imagine these people are like ridiculously statist, the German historical school, you know uh, uh, you know the, thinking that the only job of economists is simply to watch things go by and and and, and accumulate data. but you know there's this widespread belief that there's this meta- narrative driving history forward and there's really nothing. Individuals, petty individuals, could do about it, but so Hayek, Hayek's use of knowledge of society is radically individualist in a sense. So it 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 recaptures this Scottish Enlightenment tradition that you're going to find in Adam Smith. You know, who you know, you know, this Hegelian nonsense is like means nothing to Adam Smith. You know, Adam Smith is way more interested in like what the heck goes on in the factory. You know, Uh, you know, plain problems of everyday life. You know, Hayek takes that tradition and and gives it a new kind of life and a new and a new language.
0: Stephen, you uh, you run an online store, uh, which is a whole lot more mundane than uh, than what we uh, what we imagine kind of the, what we imagine people interested in this kind of uh, this kind of economic thinking. Uh, typically, do could you explain what your thoughts are as regarding the internet and uh, and this idea of de of decentralized knowledge and economy?
3: Yes, yes, and before I, I touch on that, I'd like to mention that I think we're kind of falling down the same path that you uh, that Jeffrey and Kirk were talking about before, in that today technologists are looking at uh, artificial intelligence and think that AI can collect enough data on us to be able to make all the decisions for us moving forward and I think that that's a a big mistake that they're making and they think that there's enough data and enough information that these computer systems can now collect on us that can make those decisions better than we can. Looking at, uh, I guess for me, it's more uh, the cryptocurrency world and having a background in precious metals, we would see that uh, back in the day on a silver standard, on a gold standard, it was a dumb network where innovation happened on the fringes, where banks were able to issue their own c- currencies and they had a lot more local knowledge than what they had after that centralizing process of uh, central banks. And I think that that's what we're starting to return to with uh, having these dumb protocols uh, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, where people can start innovating on the edges. And uh, there's been, I mean, the last 60 years, a, 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 a stalling of innovation in the uh, monetary system. And I think that's because of this lack of uh, having the ability to create um, new innovations, new technologies on the fringes because of uh, that centralizing process. So there's some
0: parallel here, uh, not only in the uh, the arrogance of, of big data combined with AI, but also in Hayek's uh, decentralized approach to knowledge and the emergence of these new dumb decentralized protocols that uh that we're seeing emerge come from the uh from the distributed computing and uh and applied cryptography space so can you guys uh shared some kind of uh of collective insight on on what kind of trend we're seeing emerge here
2: i'll give just a start and then i think jeffrey and Stephen will add quite a bit to it um jeffrey you did a wonderful job earlier explaining Hayek, and I was going to say I, I've boiled a lot of his thought down into a sentence about knowledge and say that knowledge is ultimately dispersed, subjective, and local to time and place. And you said all those things. Yeah. And uh, in, in the case of and, – and Hayek was quite well understood, the big idea of institutions that we – humans make decisions and human makes choices – you could say, as it were, as a, as as part of a growing crystal structure on a substrate. But there is a substrate, and that substrate includes all of the institutions broadly considered that we that we uh, we have around us. Those include political and economic and legal institutions, but they include things that are much deeper in the human psyche, like fundamental trust in groups of a hundred people and fundamental trust that maybe doesn't follow to groups of a thousand or a million people. And uh, you get to some of Smith's market understandings of how certain things happen where trust isn't in market, but a market can bring it in. At any rate, I think what you see with blockchain, to get to your question, Arthur, is that blockchain provides a technology-based institution of peer-to-peer decentralized uh, computing that is not amenable to centralized control. And it allows that technological institution of just immutable ledger of what happened and what was done in the case of blockchain version 2.0, not only um, transaction value exchange, the the first use case of blockchain, um, moving digital money and digital value, but also The results of fairly complex contracts with uh, significant business logic uh, between human actors that can be recorded in this immutable ledger and then enforced and researched and so on in this human ledger. So what I'm seeing here is a major institutional base, a technology institution institution base of communication and computing technology, uh, a single state, a world – the computer science guys would call it a world – a single, a world singleton computer that has one state, and that state then provides an institutional basis by which the local um, to time and place particular and very widely dispersed knowledge can begin to do things in ways that simply weren't possible before the advent of blockchain in about 2009.
1: No, right, it's the it's the way in which power has been distributed da- down to the end users and then back up again to the to the center. But the, but the center is uh, not owned by any one person, but it's, it sort of belongs to everybody, which is just a very strange, difficult thing to wrap your brain around for people who are used to used to thinking in terms of public property versus private property. The blockchain seems to exist in this in this third beautiful realm. But it's it's amazing. It's like the digitization of the way the world has always worked, and so we recreated a kind of and perfected, you know, a sort of human society in the digital sphere. You're giving maximum power to individuals, and that that's just that's just mind blowing. I think one of the things that's really symbolically and metaphorically interesting about Bitcoin is that it wasn't invented by some big shot at a university. And 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 QA'd through all the academic journals, the normal way we used to think innovation happened. You know, this comes out on a, you know, it's it's released in the form of a on a on a on, a, on an email list by an anonymous programmer somewhere, and, and QA'd by people that most people have never heard of. You know, just a bunch of uh, uh, sort of sort of uh, code slingers and, and geeks, who had no power. You know, they, they weren't at the Fed, they weren't the Treasury, they weren't editors of the American Economic Review or the Journal yeah. of Monetary Economics or is crap, no, no academic positions or anything. So it really wasn't a from below emergent technology that had to prove itself in the course of use. There was never really a press release. I mean, it was two years into the into the uh, after the Genesis block that I first began to hear about it, and I couldn't even find any explanations of it online that I could personally understand. That's true. I mean, unbelievable. So it's a truly emergent technology that establishes an infrastructure to make emergent technology the way we live forever.
0: That's. Beautiful. So wait, so can we, uh, can we dwell on that word emergent? Because it's fundamental to what we're talking about, but it's often ill or only partially defined.
1: Yeah, I, for me, emergent just means that it, you, you are constantly encouraged to find the error and to fix the error, and that there's no final release. You see what I mean? Uh, no final state. Yeah, no final state. I guess there's final release in a software sense, but there's there's no final. And so you begin to have to, in an emergent uh, order, you have to wake up in the morning with an expectation that you will find problems and that you hope you'll fix them by the end of the day, but that the fixes will never finally fix everything because there's change. It's constantly evolving. Therefore, there'll be new problems. And so you build in uncertainty and adaptiveness into the very core of how you think, operate, and work, and live your life—that's what it means to, to be emergent, and and that's awesome. Because you know, you know, and and the old way of doing things, we tried to create perfect systems, uh, and we wanted we wanted we wanted them frozen in place. I mean, this is the essence of st- of what we call statism, right? The state always knows the right way, and it's so convinced of the right way that it's willing to enforce the right way with guns, you know. Uh, emergent orders are exactly the opposite we always know that we're approximating ever better ways
2: so so Jeffrey's done a good job of explaining emergent orders when with social uh, beings with humans at the center of a social sphere um, I might add because I think it would be helpful for your for your listeners Arthur to think about emergent order in a slightly you know move it up a level and think about broad classes that are beyond social systems, what is an emergent order? An emergent order is simply the outcome of a complex adaptive system. So it's a system, it's multiple part uh, players playing a part. It's a complex system. Whenever you cannot describe the outcome, that which you see, the order that emerges, you could say the, the outcome, you cannot describe the outcome by anything at all that can be seen in the smallest parts of the system i'll come back to how that works in the social system and then it's an adaptive order it's a complex adaptive system when those individual agents um, react and act against one another or not just against but in 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 concert sort of in harmony somewhat in symphony uh, with one another so you can take um i'll use just three quick examples in inorganic chemistry you can ask the question what color is a gold atom and i'm going to argue here and and illustrate for you arthur that gold excuse me that, uh, that color is actually an emergent phenomena because in physics a gold atom has no color but if you put a bunch of them together in either a gas or a solid and you heat them to a certain temperature or you leave them at room temperature, they're gold color. If you heat them up, they're red or white or whatever. <clears throat> so the property of color is an emergent property, but that's only a complex system. That's not a complex adaptive system. If you change it to honeybees, you can see that you have a complex adaptive system where no honeybee knows how to make a beehive. No, not the queen, not any of the workers, not any of the drones. And yet when they work and interact with each other, they fill up spaces smaller than three-eighths of an inch with propolis, they uh, they draw wax into spaces that are bigger than an inch, bigger than three-eighths of an inch, um, the cells only get as long as the bodies of the workers who clean them, blah, 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 blah. If you take all those various things that are happening, including the chemical information that travels by pheromones, you get a beehive emerging, a complex order, emerging out of a bunch of bees that don't know how to make a beehive. In the same way in a human social system, We think because we're sentient, we think because our lives go better when we plan, Um, our socks are easier to find when we're sleepy in the morning if we've washed and folded them than if we throw them in a pile. Um, We tend to think that sometimes human social systems can and should be planned the same way when in fact those same sorts of things, the human social order is a complex and adaptive system where all the agents, the humans are making decisions and we make decisions based on those institutions, the rules, what other humans around us are doing, and so on. And what comes out of it is utterly and completely unpredictable. And that's emergent order.
1: I want, it. I want to have that. I want, I want everything you just said to be written in a 1,000-word essay and, and broadcast. <laughs> that was, that was, it was beautiful and inspiring. So thank you. My goodness.
0: And it brings us to the point that you were making, uh, Stephen, about um, about artificial intelligence and big data and how there's this – it almost seems like we're on a watershed now where we've had this movement toward big data and there's huge – and artificial intelligence development and there's huge momentum in that direction, and yet we're also seeing these new technologies that are about um, – Distributed intelligence and uh, and coordination of large groups of, uh, of of people, in in this case, to create these emergent uh, phenomena like uh, like online um, like online economies.
3: Yeah, well, I think that it's quite interesting to see a, a wide variety of intellectuals from very different political economic backgrounds coming to these uh, new emergent orders like blockchain technology with uh, very different per- preconceived notions, uh, such as uh, there are many people who see themselves as socialists, but they are drawn to blockchain technology because of the idea of consensus. And they are seeing that there is benefit in decentralization but uh they still want a kind of a, a a group think or group ownership over the means of production or rather than a group think a an ai to control that with the data that it's collecting but if it's done in a decentralized way where it's collecting uh, data from IOT devices. So the knowledge is a lot more dispersed Then it's okay, and it's better if it's done by AI than by individuals. So it's interesting to see uh, the these ideas uh, uh, you, know, s- you know, staying around and really uh, emerging in different ways and I guess uh, yeah, I mean it's it's quite an interesting um, dichotomy I think because it's although they're promoting things like decentralization they are still doing it from a, a viewpoint of wanting to have a stagnant system of controlling the system.
0: And this is uh this is the opposite of what you were describing uh Jeffrey which is this continually adaptive system. That's uh, that that never never achieves a, a
1: final state. You, you know, I I was thinking about this this adapt. You know, I, I got to tell you that one of the reasons this is on the top of my brain is I was doing some research on the history of Wikipedia this morning. Perfect. <laughs> and you know, and and so you've got this guy Jimmy Wales who gets influenced by this article, use of knowledge in society. He says, you know, why don't we do an encyclopedia online? And this is in two thousand one. And so for the next 10 years, the entire world is denouncing the guy and calling him a fool and saying, this is stupid. This is the dumbest thing. It's completely useless. It's discredited. It's uncredible. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica people were denouncing him. I mean, he endured so many things in Aros for 10 years. And then suddenly, you know, we wake up one day, and it's like one of the wonders of the world, you know. <laughs> and, but nobody believed <coughs> it could happen. And one of the things he used to do, Jimmy, is when somebody would say, "Well, there's a lot of mistakes." You know, he'd be on these debates and say, so "Well, there's a lot of mistakes in Wikipedia." He'd say, "Well, uh, g- gee, I, g- if you spot one, could you let me know? Because, or even better, log in and fix it." <laughs> and that always like flummox the critics to be like, uh, "Well, but anyway, there's a mistake." He's like, "Well, that's the point." Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, look at there the was
2: way there's actually an article published on that in uh, Nature. Uh, the British science journal Nature that uh, looked at Encyclopedia Britannica versus Wikipedia pages where they took as I believe it was 18 or 20 different pages on topics from across the sciences, the humanities, etc., and and a few biographies. And uh, they gave them, they printed them up in ways that you couldn't tell which came from which, then gave them to scholars in those fields to evaluate. And as I recall, that particular study came up that uh, the Britannica pages and the uh, and the Wikipedia pages all had errors, um, something like, on average, 2.5 or 3.2 errors per page, both of them. And uh, they broke it into minor errors and, my, and and major errors, and both of them were about the same. There wasn't was much same. difference.
1: Yeah, the only difference is that on Wikipedia, you can you know, easily fix them, so it's, you know, it's fascinating.
2: This is true, Jeffrey, because Wikipedia, you brought up Wikipedia, but Wikipedia is essentially a Smithian market. Um. Essentially, anybody can write stuff, and so you can write stuff, and the good stuff tends to stay, and the bad stuff tends to get pulled out. That's one simplistic way to look at it. It's more than that, but you're correct. It's a very beautiful emergent order. I say that as a guy who, uh, I've only recently confessed to some of my coworkers that I have been a, um, a very involved Wikipedia editor since 2004. That is really And,
1: good. Um, and in really
2: some good. way, I have, I have some. 35,000 plus edits and, and, well, uh, you know, and, and, and which puts me in something like the top 2,000 editors but I had a lot of free time on my hands before I went to work for consensus. But you know <laughs> I don't have the, that anymore. My edit old, count uh, has dropped drastically.
1: <laughs> and the old you know analog days, you know you, you had to assign this way the encyclopedia uh, editors would work they would assign an entry to the expert in the field. Then 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 he would put together all his knowledge and write sort of something like a consensus, you know, and then dump it in there. And it'd be frozen in place and they would get a print and they would say it would stick for fifteen or twenty years. And that was it, that was it, you know. And and you know, this obviously has um its own kind of failings. There is a very interesting moment happened in Murray Rothbard's life, because he was something like I think it was like 1959, and he was kind of out of money and didn't really have a job and he was sort of like struggling through graduate school, you know. But he had done a lot of studies in economic history. So he decided to write some some encyclopedia entries for some encyclopedia company. I can't remember which one it was. And he wrote to me and said, Do you need entries? And they said, Oh, thank God you're an economic historian. We need entries on you know the following topics, you know, the panic of 1819, the <laughs> whiskey rebellion, sure. uh sure. you know, whatever. So he writes, he pounds out like five the essays It is these brilliant encyclopedia entries you know so he tries to he tries to pull back on his Rothbardianism you know and speak a little bit more like you know like like an encyclopedia dude right so he sends them in and and the editor writes back and says i don't know what the hell you're talking about here but you know expert or no this is not the consensus of the profession so all of his all of his entries were rejected you know and Murray was furious because he's like, "Look, I'm well trained. I'm in the I'm the biggest expert there is in these things. You know, he won't let me represent because because my because because I don't represent the consensus of the profession. You know, what if what if what if I know a shit ton of stuff? Does that count for anything? You know, so 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 yeah, I'm i tell the story only to show you you know the the mistakes that are made when you have a centralized system
0: because then you get stasis of knowledge. There's no way to move forward, right? Because you get this this convergence on a single uh, on this this benign consensus as opposed to anything that might be uh, remotely revisionist i guess
2: exactly emergent exactly emergent orders are are always about feedback always dynamic because the feedback is always live it can always happen there's this no final state that jeffrey talked about earlier and as a result no article is ever finished in wikipedia just as the the order the economy we live in is not finished it's it's dynamic and it moves forward stasis uh which is something that humans who plan too much and think that they can plan a a great society much as they try to plan the 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 folded and clean socks in their sock drawer um they think they can do that but but really the outcome's not possible in a in emergence it will always change it's always dynamic
3: yeah, I, I think bringing it back to looking at blockchain technology and, and specifically the Bitcoin blockchain, that's why I love comparing it to the English language, because the English language is an, a fantastic emergent order that constantly evolves and changes. And uh, anyone can really come up with a word and and use it. And if it's a word that makes sense, then pretty soon it will. You know, might take a year. Might like the word muggle. Might take uh, a few decades. But it'll enter into the English language. And uh, looking at software and blockchain technology, it's it has the ability to evolve over time. It's uh, essentially what, what software developers call beta. Google has been in beta for the last fifteen years, and. Uh, I think that that's what we're going to see for most of the software moving forward.
0: So I don't mean to keep coming back to this point, but I, I uh, I'm I'm quite conscious that this is extremely pertinent to uh, what we're seeing today in uh, in these these technological trends of the the big data and AI and how that represents on the one hand the uh, the central planning of um, that we that we saw. Emerge from wartime thinking, and then the uh, new distributed systems being developed, and um, I'd like to kind of come to some kind of understanding of how are these two uh, schools of thought and ways of doing things? How are they going to interact, and how are they going to affect us as they uh, as they develop in their respective streams?
1: Kurt, that sounds like you.
2: <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I certainly am a, I mean, I'm a technologist, and I've been kind of living. I remember when I first joined the uh, IEEE, just out of um, my undergraduate in engineering. Uh, you had to pick ten, or you picked ten little uh, bullets on a on a on a feed sheet to say what you were interested in. I picked cybernetics as one of them. So I've always been. I was doing digital control systems, so I've always been interested in that topic of cybernetics. But having said that, I've not pursued it much professionally, and I don't think a lot about it. Um, I do think when I hear different people with their various AI theories, the AIs that are going to take over the world, and the and the um, and uh, we're going to take a human brain, which after all they say is just a computer program, and we'll upload it into a computer and we'll have all the answers, is I think they are missing um, exactly the wisdom that comes out of Hayek and, and was seen so clearly in his use of knowledge in society essay but really was his whole project which is complex phenomena simply don't work that way and the biggest weaknesses that will undermine what the ai the big data the big powers can can do those weaknesses will all be emergent and they will come in the uh, spread they, they will i think my my hypothesis would be that they will um come about from this idea of dispersed knowledge that the ai can't know about knowledge that is subjective well what does subjective mean subjective means it's in the subject as opposed to objective something that can be turned into narrow information so computers are excellent at dealing with binary information and anything that can be digitized into firm exact precise binary information but so much of knowledge and so much of what i what I think was was Hayek's project in my own study uh, in in it in later in, in economic philosophy that looked at Hayek and others is simply that knowledge is much 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 richer orders of magnitude richer than mere information and AIs and big data are real good at information they're not so good at knowledge. so we go back to what Jeffrey started with um, distributed, um, subjective knowledge, knowledge seen through human subjects. I'm going to see it a little different than than Arthur or Jeffrey or Stephen. And then also knowledge that's particular to time and place. I don't care how many sensors you put out and how many drones are flying around, how many cameras the British government puts in filming the people of London. They simply aren't going to have the information that is particular to time and place at the level that the myriad humans will have. So I, I, I tend to be skeptical of those theories that talk about a point coming very soon that, uh, that, that, that humans will be unimportant.
1: You, you know what I would love to do if you wouldn't mind so much. I mean, um, maybe somebody has, uh, the article right there, but I, Hayek's article begins with an astounding statement actually, uh, that speaks exactly, uh, to that. <clears throat> what is the problem we wish to solve when we try to construct a rational economic order on certain familiar assumptions the answer is simple enough. If we possess all the relevant information, if we can start out from a given system of preferences, and if we command complete knowledge of all available means, the problem, which remains, is purely one of logic. Then I'm going to skip the next couple of sentences. This, however, is emphatically not the problem that society faces. And then he goes on, you know. So that's just an amazing opening, you know? <laughs> you know well, it, it I actually like, I'm gonna read just two,
2: a couple more sentences if I may. Oh. Skip a couple sentences, Jeffrey, after which you read and say this. The peculiar character of the problem of a rational economic order is determined precisely by the fact that the knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits that incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge, which all the separate individuals possess. I'm gonna put a full stop right there. That's just in Hayek's first page. And with yeah. that full stop, he's just described emergent order. All of the individuals possess and they're acting, that's the complex adaptive system they act against. And with and in concert and in synchrony with one another, as well as competitive pressures against one another, and those things make an order or facilitate an order emerging that no one can know. Which is fundamentally the excitement. I mean, that's fundamentally the excitement of blockchain. It's fundamentally why I'm here in this space when I could be doing other things. I, I, I'm not here just because I need the economic means. I'm here because I want to be part of building the future.
1: And, you know, it's so exciting when you think about what those sentences must have sounded like in 1945. I mean, you've got academics and, 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 and bureaucrats and professionals, you know, experts all over the world who read those first two paragraphs and, and they're going, if this is right, my life sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Something has gone very wrong in everything I think, you know. Wow. Wow.
0: Okay, well, I think um, I think we've covered pretty much uh, some pretty solid ground there. Is there anything else we need to uh, we need to get down before we wrap up?
3: Well, I'd like to uh, touch a little bit on, I guess, the money side of things. And Hayek goes through and talks about prices as signals that provide information based on everyone's limited uh, local knowledge and. I think that right now, how we're transforming from uh, analog money to digital money, people are, who are very much anti money, uh, are wanting to apply AI to use uh, data to pr- send those signals rather than prices. And it's interesting because uh, pretty soon prices will be created in 1s and zeros, so it will be uh, digital. However, we're still going to need that language of value, essentially, to help determine the allocation of those resources. So it's not going to be based on uh, data collection. It's still going to be based on that local knowledge that every individual actor has.
1: Um, you know, let me let me say something else about this because I don't I don't we don't know I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but you know if there's any listener out there who's like, I don't understand any of this I don't understand any of this crap. I can totally get it because, I mean, after Hayek died, uh, somebody could look up what year that was. I, I don't remember. It was like the nineties. remember. So a big international journal of opinion contacted me and said, "Will you write an obit uh, of three thousand words?" Uh, for Hayek and describe his major contributions. And I said, yeah, not a problem. So I, I got to writing on it, and I, and I stopped. And I suddenly realized I couldn't describe Hayek's contribution. I just couldn't do it. I mean, like, I didn't know it well enough. I didn't even understand it. In fact, I realized only at that moment that I had completely failed to understand what Hayek was going. The, the, the subject that consumed the second half of his life I couldn't even write more than one sentence about it because I was stupid. And, you know, it took me like another 20 years before I began to really uh, get to the point that I could say what I said at the opening of this podcast, actually. So I only say that just to say to any listeners, don't get discouraged. You know, it's difficult. If it were easy enough to put it into a, a bumper sticker or a meme, somebody would have done it already. This is a hard <laughs> subject. You know, it's, it's complex, to describe complex systems. So, so you got to work at it, stay at it, use your imagination, look around the world. Everywhere you look, there are Hayekian systems. Everything you do, you're dealing with Hayekian systems. Uh, you need Hayek as your decoder ring just to explain to you something that you can't control and something you can't fully understand. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. That's fantastic. Well, We'll leave it at that.
0: Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me, guys. Um, right Before we go, though, where can, uh, where can people find out more about uh, your, yourselves, your work, etc.?
1: Uh, I would highly recommend coming to fee.org, subscribing to our daily email. It's fun, fun, fun. We're doing our best to revive and make good on the province of that early generation that founded Fee, and uh, I think we're doing a good job. So fee, how, how do you spell it
2: jeffrey you didn't say what it was it's the foundation for economic education i guess you're right i
1: didn't say that i, mean, I guess i'm so used to just same feet but yeah foundation expand, for expand
2: all acronyms jeffrey right. <laughs> <laughs> um, um i'm kirk dameron and uh my name will obviously be in arthur's podcast notes i uh I'm currently working at ConsenSys, um, and uh, Arthur can spell that, has a different spelling. And, uh, and uh, we are building the, um, with the blockchain, we're trying to build on both the, at the client peer-to-peer protocol level, I'm working on a next-generation client personally with a team that uh, we just announced some things publicly a week and a half ago, as well as um, at the application level, uh, many, many, many applications that will work in this decentralized space. I'm also on LinkedIn.
0: And uh, and Stephen?
3: Yes. Well, you can find me if you're interested in uh, or located in New Zealand at uh, blockchain.org.nz for any kind of blockchain information. And you can also find me at store.bitcoin.com. And that's the, uh, the cryptocurrency merchandise store that I run.
0: Fantastic. Thanks a bunch, guys. I'll, uh, I'll let you go and talk to you uh, at a later date, I have no doubt.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Enjoyed it. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Episode 42 of State Change. Next week, software engineer Simon de la Ruvier and biochemical engineer Meher Roy shed light on how the battle for our attention has become an economy in and of itself how we can expect to see this economy evolve, and how it will change the world we live in. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to State Change on iTunes or find us at statechange.net. You can follow us on Twitter at statechange underscore. And if you have any comments about the show or any questions, email contact at statechange.net.